Welcome to the Synapse Nips podcast, where we explore the power of health and healing. On this podcast, we will be talking with health experts, professionals, and leaders about hot topics in the world of health. Whether it's tools to help you flourish, successful stories to inspire, or tips to optimize your health, Synapse Nips is here to help you take the first steps towards living your best life. talking about SIBO today, or gut health maybe more generally, but we wanted to talk about something we see a lot of, which is SIBO. SIBO stands for small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And it's a very common thing that we find is either a primary problem or is a secondary concern based on other things. Um, SIBO is a big topic and it can be often overlooked. But on the other hand, a lot of people assume they have SIBO when that's not the main actual thing that they've got going on. So there's a lot of a lot of nuance with this conversation that we'll try not to get too far into the weeds with. Um, but I think first, I already defined SIBO a bit, but let's talk about the symptoms that a person can get that would make us think that the person has SIBO. I'll start with that. Uh, sure. Yeah. The, the symptoms can actually be pretty widespread. Uh, I've had anything from uh, gas and bloating um, to uh, headaches to malabsorption issues. So, for example, one of my worst SIBO cases uh, didn't have any intestinal symptoms, signs or symptoms, but I had a really horrific thyroid scenario going mm-hmm. on. And they ended up being very deficient in iodine and, and were not absorbing the iodine very, very well. And then I've had other patients that have constipation uh, with sluggish bowels and and distension and bloating and uh, um, just general uh, well-being issues. And so it, it can range. Generally speaking, uh, it can impact the digestive system. Most people do have uh, some level of not breaking down mm-hmm. their, their food properly. So an example might be uh, they have steak and it sits in their gut like a brick because yeah. uh, they can't break it down. That is not a direct correlation with SIBO, but more a direct correlation of low stomach acid, which is, which is one of the triggers of SIBO. Yeah. So it, it can be a little bit challenging sometimes, but uh, a lot lot of things like uh, having sugar uh, or fruit even, and then having some level of discomfort an hour or two later mm-hmm. from that can definitely do that. A lot of times, though, it's in... Uh, malabsorption issues of some key nutrients and and it's those understanding what those nutrients do in your body that'll that'll kind of take you to the SIBO diagnosis. Yeah, these issues always snowball. You know, there's always one thing that sets up a problem like this and it might be low stomach acid. The other common things that'll set up SIBO are thyroid issues, yeah. hypothyroid, because it causes a sluggishness of the intestinal tract. We see it with certain neurological issues and head injuries. You can yep. see things slow down. Basically, if the gut's going to slow down, you just have more opportunity for things to that are hitchhiking on their way through to stop and set up shop in your small intestine that you don't want. So why do they stop and set up shop? Let's talk about that because that's one of my favorite uh, conversations. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is big too because it's it, this is I actually talked to a patient about this yesterday. It's the difference between germ theory and terrain theory, which we don't have to get into the details of that. But we could if we wanted to. We could if we wanted to, maybe for another time. (laughs) But the idea generally is that germ theory says you have a germ, a bacteria or something, and if you have that get into your body, you're going to get sick. Terrain theory is saying that 
germ theory part might be true, but the main the main differentiating factor in whether or not somebody gets sick or gets an infection or gets an overgrowth is the health and the state of their their system, their immune mm-hmm. system, their intestinal tract. How healthy is that to begin with? Because there are some people that that I talk to that just have you know steel trap type guts. Or they can eat anything; it doesn't matter if it's been uh, sitting out of the refrigerator for five days. Yep. They're just mm-hmm. a, you know, they're going to have no problem with that. And then we find other people that are the one thing wrong and they get bloating for a week. Yes. And so a lot of that has to do with the 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 terrain or the health of the intestinal tract in general. Yes. One of the big things that we see, and I know that Troy is dying to talk about this one, is nutrient deficiencies causing the setup. Yes. So tell me, what do you know about nutrient deficiencies? Well, I'm with you on the terrain theory. I, I, I'm a, a huge proponent of the terrain theory because that's what I've seen the majority of change mm-hmm. as far as long-term change. And it, it kind of makes sense to me that, you know, as a bacteria may pass by, but it's not going to stay if it's not the right environment. And so it's kind of like, you know, if the if you're from Florida originally and you're coming to Minnesota in January, you may not stay in Minnesota because the environment's just a little too <laughs> yeah. unwelcoming to you. So so you go a little further south, and that's what happens with the bacteria as they pass through us. They they should be majority of them should be in the large intestine, yeah. not the small intestine. If the pH is right or the temperature is right for the for them to stay, then they'll they'll stay in the small intestine or the ones from the large intestine may even migrate up into the small mm-hmm. intestine. Yeah. And so, uh, what was your question again? <laughs> I know, well, I know you want to talk about B1. Yes, I do. Yeah. So. yeah, so the nutrient deficiencies. And to your point, when we see something affect the nerve, and many people may have heard of the vagus nerve, but the mm-hmm. vagus nerve is the main nerve that helps support a digestive function. And so if for some reason it's not firing properly, mm-hmm then we're going to see a sluggish bowel. Mm -hmm. And there are so many reasons that can cause that. We've talked a lot in the past about being in a state of fight or flight or rest and digest. Mm -hmm. Fight or flight is what we call sympathetic dominance. And that, if you're in fight or flight, it it literally inhibits the vagus nerve's ability to function. And you can't be in fight or flight and rest and digest at the same time. Fight or flight is like if you're being chased by a tiger. And if you're being chased by a tiger, it's an awful time to sit down and eat lunch. (laughs) <laughs> or or have a nap, yeah. or become intimate with your partner. So those systems stop working as well. Mm-hmm. So we want to get out of fight or flight. And if there's one thing I could do for people in general to help their health, it's to get them out of fight or flight mm-hmm. and into rest and digest, improve their sleep and their digestive system. So other things that can actually impact the vagus nerve, other than fight or flight, we've seen things like copper toxicity can do that. Um, one of our favorites recently is B1 deficiency. Mm-hmm. And when the vagus nerve stops supporting the gut, we see a, a decrease in the ability of the stomach to release its stomach acid mm-hmm. properly. We see a decrease in the pancreas ability to release its enzymes to break down certain food, including nutrients. And then we have discovered recently with some things that have come across our desk, uh, the overall impact that that can have on things like B1 and the utilization of B1 within the body. And it turns out B1 is needed to help the vagus nerve. Mm -hmm. So the vagus nerve is just like any other nerve. It needs two things, really. It needs oxygen or fuel supply. So it needs nutrients like gas in the tank of a car and needs to be stimulated. So the fight or flight is kind of like the stimulus part of it. 
that's what'll that'll inhibit it so you can't stimulate the nerve. But if there's no gas in the tank, it's not gonna work. So as we get people into more of a parasympathetic state, it's called, where we stimulate the vagus nerve, we have to make sure there's gas in the tank. And that that can be uh, B1 is a big part of it. That's oxygen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, there are some other uh, factors that go into that that we can get into more depth in a later date. But B1 is important because if you, if you don't get that vagus nerve firing, you can treat SIBO and it'll just keep coming back. And recurrent SIBO is very common and it means you're not... I'm going to keep this oversimplified, but it means you're not getting the fight or flight component addressed mm-hmm. or the fuel supply issue addressed for that vagus nerve. Yeah. So that was a lot at once. So let's it recap was. real quickly. That's fine. I know that we all want to make sure that people are keeping up. So things that set up SIBO so far that we've talked about, low stomach acid, yep. which can be caused by a variety of factors, um, issues with thyroid and hormone function. We've got issues with nerve function, like the vagus nerve slowing things down. Yes. We have, and we should talk about this a little bit too, issues with, you already mentioned that most of the bacteria should be in the colon. Yes. If the junction between your small and large intestine, the ileocecal valve, which is a common spot for us to check, or we call it the ICV for short, if that spot is dysfunctional, you can get things going the back backwards, going the wrong direction, which yes. is kind of gross to think about because... But things from the colon then deciding to hitchhike upward. Yes. And so really what you need to do to simplify it more, and I tell my patients this, you have to make sure that you're trying not to eat bacteria, right? Clean food, clean water, all that stuff. You need to make sure that everything is moving through appropriately and getting digested properly, right? That's the stomach acid. That's the nerve function. And you have to make sure that, one, either you're not constipated or things don't come back up the wrong way. And Mm -hmm. that's issues with that valve. Exactly. And those are the things that will set up an environment so that bacteria would then want to thrive and grow and have all their problems within your small intestine. Yes. To your point on that, some of the things that affect that valve... um, uh, there's a quite a list actually, but uh, yeah. if you're eating an inflammatory diet and uh, you eat an inflammatory diet and then you also eat some healthy mm-hmm. fruits and vegetables, that can actually set up some dysfunction. So uh, what happens is people, when they get a massage, they feel nice and relaxed. But if you go and get a sunburn and then get that same massage, it can be very <laughs> yeah. stressful. If you eat inflammatory food, it's like a sunburn on the lining of your intestinal tracts. Then if you follow it with a high-fiber food diet, the fiber's job is to rub up against the sides of the walls, including that valve, just like a massage would on your your skin. So you end up getting these spasms in that area. There are certain things that put out that fire. Vitamin D is very important. There's a theory, but I've seen this come true in my 20-plus years here at the clinic. There's a theory that people have had their appendix removed have a greater incidence of ileocecal valve dysfunction. And I've seen that to be very, very true. Um, so there's the theory is either it's from the surgery um, and the scar tissue, uh, or that in some way the appendix is actually helping with lubrication of the valve, So which I find interesting. All I know is I've seen the correlation. Uh, we've also seen low back problems. People with L3 spondylos or lordotic issues there's a segmental innervation that comes off the spine that helps support that valve. And so you can even have a low back issue triggering a valve issue, which eventually leads to a SIBO issue, which eventually leads to a thyroid issue. <laughs> yeah. That's that's a we need to come up with our own synapse song for the, the leg <laughs> yeah. bones connected to the we'll do that for all of these uh, I'll let you work on that. <laughs> yeah, I'll work on that. You guys can sing it, maybe I'll come up with the lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Um, you know, 
as we try to work on SIBO, you mentioned the treatment-resistant SIBO part, but let's talk more generally and more, because we don't always see treatment-resistant SIBO. Oftentimes Correct. it is treatment amenable, right? It, yes. It's improved by yeah. it. And so typically, you know, our treatment is a couple a couple different main topics that we talk about. One, we want to make sure that all of those things that we were just talking about, nerve function, nutrient function are appropriate. We also typically, if there's bacteria or fungus overgrowing in this area, need to starve out those things, yeah. right? And then we need to try to kill them actively. Yeah. You know, so there's a lot going on there to try to get over this. And so why don't you expound a little bit on the the starving and killing portion of that process? Yeah, this is kind of funny because this is what blows a lot of our patients away is that the diet that we put you on uh, that's that's kind of bad for you right now is what you want to be doing later on when, when you're all balanced and well. <laughs> yeah. So we actually, um, we, we try to kill off the bacteria, whether it's good or bad, mm-hmm. uh, in the small intestine. So we'll give some antibacterial, some natural antibacterial components mm-hmm. um, uh, that can help kill that off. But we also want to do what's called a low FODMAP type diet so that uh, we're not supporting that system, if you will. Yeah. And so sugar tends to feed fungus and, uh, and bacteria f- uh, feed on undigested food particles. So we also will add stomach acid and enzymes to the program uh, to help take the place of what the pancreas and the stomach are doing until we can get that vagus nerve firing more efficiently. And the reality is when you get that vagus nerve firing, you won't need those supplements. You shouldn't. Mm -hmm. And how do you know you need those supplements or you need to get the vagus nerve firing? Well, as we age and we sleep our sleep becomes more compromised and, and more challenging. We, you can also tell because if you find yourself having to eat supper at 4 o'clock or 4.30, like at senior hour, <laughs> there's a reason why it's at senior hours, 4.30, it's because mm-hmm. it takes their system so much longer to digest the food, otherwise they mm-hmm. don't sleep. Is that why you stop seeing patients at 4? I have to be, I have to be done. <laughs> I have to eat supper. <laughs> I'm so old. <laughs> you got you people see what I have to deal with here? <laughs> That's exactly why. Yeah. <laughs> Back in my day, I used to stay right till 10 p.m. <laughs> you need to have that food digested in a snap. That food was yeah. digested, and I went right to bed. <laughs> I think we should mention real quick, you said low FODMAP diet. Yes. Most people won't have heard of FODMAP, which is a weird thing. I don't even have the acronym memorized because it's long words, but it's essentially, like you said, undigested, fermentable carbohydrate products. The common ones within that group that people have heard of are lactose from milk is one of those FODMAPs. Fructose from, especially high fructose corn syrup or processed foods, but even fruit, certain fruits are high in fructose. Those two, and there's others too. I think there's four other main categories. And if we, one day we'll have Amber, our nutritionist, come on and she'll just school us all on that. And she'll talk about all of it. So stay tuned for that one later. But the point being is that we have to remove those foods because that's fuel for all the bacteria. Yes. You mentioned something important though, is diet and timing. And I want to hit that too. Low FODMAP diets are not meant to be long-term diets. No, they're meant to be at max. In my mind, two months is kind of the max that I like to see. Yeah. And you can go less. Sometimes you go more depending on the person. But the you have to eventually be in a state where you can add those foods back in. Yes. Because they're fuel for not only bad bacteria, but good bacteria too. Yes, which you need in your large intestine. Mm-hmm. So what you're doing in the beginning to get rid of the bacteria, when they're in the right spot, then you want to promote the bacteria. Mm-hmm. Yep. And we see that very often 
when people come in, they've maybe done a low FODMAP diet or they've done some other SIBO or gut intervention, but they haven't gone all the way there. Yeah. That's one of the other causes of the recurrent SIBO is that if you stop halfway, I always think of it as this. If you've if you bought, bought a new property with an old barn sitting on it and you want to build something else there, you got to tear the barn down, but you can't build on top of that broken down barn. No. you got to clear out that junk, make sure that that spot's nice and level and the foundation's up to build the new building. Then you got to build a new building. Yes. A lot of people in this situation, they blow up the old barn and then they just expect something good to happen out of that. Yes. <laughs> and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes that burn is still, barn is still on fire or you know, whatever it is, and they, they don't ever get better. Yes. So we see that all the time, where we just don't go all the way to actually getting somebody healed. Yeah, and that's been very different in the, in the last 20 years. I'm finding that people are coming in way more knowledgeable mm-hmm. about what's going on with their body, which is great, but they haven't quite developed the the way to to actually finish it off or mm-hmm. to measure it. So that's, it's more of, I find myself saying all the time, oh, you're on the right track, but we need to do this, this, and this to navigate through it. And so it's more of a, a hand-holding and helping them walk through it a little bit better and then showing them what to look for. And a lot of what uh, we've had to do recently is teach people about how their body's working to help mm-hmm. navigate through these things. Because right now with the internet and everything, you can get a lot of information, but it's very overwhelming mm-hmm. and very complicated. And so it's all about keeping things as simple as possible uh, for them. And I find that we've had to do a lot more of that yeah. recently than at any other point in my career. Yeah. And more dealing with, I think, I think the nerve part that you mentioned is yeah. more prevalent now because of just general stress. Yes. We talked about stress on another podcast. But now that people are in a more stressful time, especially with, you know, we're in the middle of COVID, hopefully you were listening to this and you're not in COVID time anymore <laughs> in <Yes>. the future. <laughs> but right now we are, and that's been a stress on pretty much everybody. Yeah. And that alone, if that's not dealt with from a stress management perspective, is going to be the thing that keeps the SIBO coming back. Absolutely. Because it keeps the environment poor in the intestines. There's, a, there's a, another example I give people. When people have the high levels of stress, think about really high acute stress. What can people develop? Ulcers. Mm-hmm. And so that is because of the dysfunction, the communication between the brain, the vagus nerve, and the stomach itself. The timing mechanism of when acid is released from the stomach uh, actually gets thrown off. But what happens with long-term stress that's not super acute like that is we still get pH changes and we get these other things, uh, smaller, tinier holes, and they now have identified as leaky gut. Mm -hmm. Uh, That can come from a concussion um, and then you develop leaky gut within a week. So we we know that when we lose that nerve's ability to support the intestinal lining, that Mm -hmm. little holes or big holes can occur and infections can occur or autoimmune can occur because of that. So treating your SIBO and staying on top of it is crucial for prevention of your overall health. And I remember hearing uh, a doctor who I actually respect quite a bit, but he he said something that I thought was kind of uh, interesting at the time. He said he stopped treating SIBO because all of his patients had it. Uh, so he thought it was like not a thing. <laughs> and so once I, I, I heard that and I thought, that's interesting. So does everyone have it? So I tested people and I found some people who didn't have it. So I'm like, okay, including myself. I did. I tested myself and didn't, didn't have it. And so then I, I started looking at patients before and afterwards and I started realizing it's not that everyone has it and it's a normal thing. 
That's how dysfunctional everyone is yeah. mm-hmm. when it comes to being in fight or flight and not in rest and digest. His entire patient population was just in this fight or flight state and had SIBO. Yeah. And so it was a very eye-opening experience how many people have that. Yeah. I think this is a slightly different topic, but one thing I always try to discern through is there are things that will mimic SIBO symptoms yeah. that are not true SIBO. We see this with histamine, yep. just food intolerances or lack of absorption. And that doesn't mean that you've got an infection going on. I, I just talked to somebody about this the other day where she said, well, I treated SIBO, but every once in a while I eat these foods, I still get an issue, and they happen to be histamine-related foods. Yeah. Histamine, if you're just not breaking it down, once it gets into your gut, that'll cause bloating. That'll cause those symptoms, too. It doesn't mean you have to have an infection. So one thing, too, we have a lot of people that come in assuming SIBO, yes. and it's not that. It's something different. Yeah. So that's, again, as you're discerning through what do the symptoms actually mean, it's not always clear-cut, and that's why we do so why we do testing and why we look at these other factors. Yeah. That it's not just... Not, it's not as easy as just doing a diet, taking a supplement, and going on your merry way. For some people it is. I wish everybody was, but it's not always that easy. Yeah, and a lot of people know histamine because of antihistamines mm-hmm. and, and seasonal allergies, but can you talk a little bit about uh, does histamine have any relationship with the stomach uh, or the brain or anything like <laughs> yeah, that? Yeah. Just real briefly. We'll do a whole other I show know, this is, this is a big topic, but yeah. you know, histamine is released by, by both nerves and by the immune system. You can take in foods that have histamine or promote histamine. Histamine is necessary for stomach acid release. Yeah. We see issues where, and this is why actually a lot of people don't know, know this. I always get these medications confused. I think it's uh, Zantac, I think is the, is the antacid. The anti-acid. It's actually an antihistamine. And yeah. so that's why it works as an antacid. You're blocking the histamine's signal to the stomach to make acid. So that's, that's an interesting thing. It also works in the brain. People with high levels of histamine will have a higher likelihood towards anxiety. That's a very common thing. But the normal histamine things are too. Skin rashes, congestion, you can get bladder irritation from this. There's a wide variety of histamine symptoms. Hives, you know, we see that a lot. Some people come in with all of those symptoms and you think, oh, you're a walking histamine ball, essentially. Yes. <laughs> Don't be offended if he calls you a, yeah. Josh calls you a walking histamine ball. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I think histamine is overlooked um, and it's a, it is a big topic because not only can you have histamine intolerance where you just don't tolerate it when you're taking it in, you can have issues with, like I said, the immune system and mast cells in particular, yep. that they make histamine in excess based on different environmental or dietary triggers. But again, from a digestive perspective, you can get the same symptoms that you would with SIBO just from a histamine problem. But I'm then, all, I, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, but then that's part of the, the, the intake process is to ask. I always yes. ask, what other histamine symptoms might you have? Yeah. Because if the person says, I don't have rashes and I don't have anxiety and I don't have any of these other things, then I'm more likely to think it's not histamine, it's something else. Yeah. But if they do have all those things, then you got to go that route. I'm going to say something that's, that I learned from you and our nutritionists uh, that's going to save some marriages and some relationships with parents and kids. <laughs> because I learned that uh, a lot of foods that are high histamine don't start off as high histamine. So mm-hmm. leftovers in particular... And I cannot tell you how many people come in and say, my kids won't eat leftovers. They say they feel yucky, but they did just fine the day before. Yeah. That's actually a potential histamine problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then same thing with the spouses where people just refuse to eat leftovers. And so, mm-hmm. uh, and, and then you have other people that are, well, that's a waste. You can't waste that. It causes <laughs> fights. So I've had couples in there. And when, when one of the couples hears that there's a real 
legitimate thing like steak. Steak can be fine with zero histamine, and then leftovers, it can be loaded with histamine. Yeah. Uh, and then people have reactions. Uh, the, the, the comments and the discussions we get afterwards are pretty funny because there's a whole bunch of I told you so's and all kinds <laughs> of stuff that comes out. Yes. But that blew my mind. Uh, about the leftover and stuff and how the histamines can actually accumulate with leftovers. Yeah, exactly. Some people just cannot handle or tolerate or like leftovers at all. Don't use that as an excuse unless you come <laughs> talk to us first. Yes, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, there could be other reasons. That's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think one thing that we were talking about before we started recording was gardening. Yes. And I want to talk a little bit about gardening. He always wants to talk about gardening. I do. But we were talking about it in relation to stomach acid, which seems like a weird connection. So work with us here for a minute. Yeah, not in our world. (laughs) Yeah. So we were talking about gardening because one of the three of us, and I won't name who it was, was having some issues with some plants in their kitchen. It was was (laughs) Marquis. I wasn't going to help you. And we were talking about, well, it's not necessarily the plant's fault that it's, that it's you know, wilty and droopy. It's a me problem. But we got into talking about soil health. And this goes back to our terrain discussion about soil. And I, I think we should talk a little bit more about stomach acid because stomach acid seems like an easy thing. But it really is connected to so many other pieces. And we see it involved with a variety of, as an outcome of a, a variety of different problems, especially with zinc and some of these other pieces. And I, I want to kind of have you expound a little bit on the idea of stomach acid, high versus low, because that's a misconception that's, yeah. often, uh, that's often exposed, especially when it comes to reflux. And so that whole thing is a bit of an interesting situation. Yeah. Can, you, can you touch more on that? Yeah, so my biggest pet peeve are when people are put on PPIs or proton pump inhibitors to block acid because that will mess you up long term. Mm-hmm. We've seen it in our world definitively. Now they've started to come out and, and recognize the, the, how that works. But let me, let me just kind of walk you down the path of how blocking stomach acid or low stomach acid can eventually lead to serious problems, including cancerous type situations. So the reality is stomach acid, if you have acid reflux, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're making too much acid. Now that, that is a thing. You can produce too much acid, but to make acid requires so much ATP, it's a high energy demand system. Tumors and things like that can generate increased stomach acid production, but it will eventually exhaust and fatigue you. The majority of the problems is really a dysfunctional valve or the parietal cells, which are um, the cells of the stomach. They have these things called tight junctions. When they get stretched, that's when your stomach releases the acid when it feels, uh, feels a food bolus is what it's called. So the weight of the food is what causes you to release the stomach acid. Then it starts breaking the food down. And so the problem is if you have stress, the nerves can get uh, uh, signaling or the lack of signal can actually cause the depolarization of the parietal cell to release acid at the wrong time. It's a timing mechanism issue. Then the valve is supposed to keep it there. But the valve is like a muscle. It is dependent on the vagus nerve. The most important thing that actually controls the strength of that valve is melatonin, the deep sleep hormone. If you're not sleeping or you have an undiagnosed sleep disorder, you can develop acid reflux. And so really, it's a problem with a mechanism issue and the health of the integrity of the inside of the lining for the stomach acid. With that being said, the majority of people who think they have high stomach acid who are put on acid blockers have a sleep disorder and have low stomach acid. Now, here's the ironic thing that happens in the body. 
<laughs> low stomach acid eventually equals high body acid. Hmm. So the, the body burden of acid goes up. Here's the mechanism. Low stomach acid leads to a SIBO or SIFO, small intestinal fungal overgrowth, where you have the bacteria um, and the fungus growing in excess. Now, every time a bacteria or fungus eats sugar or anything, just like a car consumes gas and exhaust comes out, the byproducts of metabolism for bacteria and fungus are acids. We measure this with a test called organic acid test. Those acids now enter the body. And so when you get a hyper accumulation of these acids, you can end up getting like a metabolic acidosis or overall acidic body. Your kidneys have to pull that out. So we see a lot of people with their kidneys starting to fail because they're just too acidic in the body because of the bacterial overgrowth, because of the low stomach acid. When that acid starts to penetrate the cells and it gets into our where our mitochondria is, our mitochondria starts to downregulate. In fact, when they do research on muscular dystrophy and mitochondrial myopathies, they drip uh, acid, tartaric acid, right on the mitochondria to damage it. Guess where tartaric acid comes from? Marky? Your stomach. <laughs> Close. <laughs> fungus. So fungus, uh, they, they grow fungus, they pull out the tartaric acid, they do the research on the mitochondria by dripping the acid on the mitochondria, and then they see what can heal it. But when we have this abundance of acid in our body, it eventually gets into our mitochondria. It starts damaging our mitochondria. Our mitochondria is the powerhouse of our cells, number one. Number two, it also releases 10,000 times uh, the antioxidants to protect our DNA. When you lose that, you're now at risk for cancer. And so by fixing the gut and getting the stomach acid improved, you're actually improving that whole mechanism of reducing the acid burden in the body and then protecting your mitochondria, which has multiple uh, components of, of health and healing for you. And that's why you saw recently they they made they started looking at long-term PPI use and linking it to cancers. 20 years, 10 years. And so we knew that mechanism as far as just how the body was working based on measuring things by looking at what was happening in the gut and and the vagus nerve. So by restoring your sleep and your stomach acid, we see this net uh, impact uh, all the way down to the mitochondria mm -hmm. inside the cell. It's just, it's beautiful. It's brilliantly designed mm -hmm. as far as how it works. But when there's a breakdown in that system, we also see slowly over the years how that can, that can happen. And we've seen many doctors like Doug Kaufman write about fungus and linking it to certain cancers as well. And that was decades ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is really where the art and the science of what yeah. we do meet because every no two people are, are the same when they come in with similar symptoms. And these mechanisms, obviously, are complicated. Mm -hmm. And so, one, from our perspective, it's worth knowing the science of it. But actually getting into how do you walk a patient through that process is not just a straightforward protocol. Like, you do this and this and this and this and this. No, it never works out that easily, right? No. It's always a bit of a dance trying to get all of that to cooperate. Well, you just said the word process. Because mm -hmm. it took, for that mechanism, that can take 10 to 15 years to play to out break. to the point yeah. of cancer. So we're undoing 10 mm -hmm. years of dysfunction and, and cleaning up while you're still dysfunctional. We often say sometimes with some of our more complex patients, we're building the plane as we're flying it. Yeah. And that's that's very true. That's It's a process and you have to fix things as 
those things are being bombarded by the things that damaged them in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. So that's part of the problem and part of the, and also once you know how to measure it though, it just brings peace of mind that there's a solution. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's worth mentioning because I have young kids and I've seen both young kids and adults now where their issues initially stemmed from reflex as an infant yeah. and being mm-hmm. put on PPIs that early, yeah. just right away out of the womb, essentially because they have reflex. Yeah. Those situations, I want to bring this up because that can really set you up for, unfortunately, a life of some difficulties, especially digestively and yeah. then leading to other things. But in that situation for an infant, it can be not always, but it can be a very simple solution. Yeah, one of the most simple solutions is is just from crying and feeding, um, the stomach, their digestive system is just learning. So, mm-hmm. so you can overfeed, you can underfeed, or just crying. The stomach can actually get caught up in the diaphragm. Mm-hmm. It's called a functional hiatal hernia. It's different than a, a medical hiatal hernia. That, that requires surgery. Occasionally, the stomach can get caught up in the diaphragm, and when... Think about what I said earlier about the parietal cells. Every time those parietal cells are stretched, they release acid. Well, if your stomach is caught up on the diaphragm, every time you breathe, you're contracting on the stomach, which is going to release acid. So that is a timing mechanism issue again. So we've noticed, we've had patients where we just gently pull down on the baby's stomach and all of a sudden they don't burp up and they don't spit up and they, they don't have the acid problem anymore. And I had a really well-known uh, case where it was a nine-year-old and he had been on proton pump nator since he was a baby. Mm-hmm. And he had the burning pain never went away. So even at nine, he had that burning pain. We pulled his stomach down once and it, it actually popped, which usually doesn't happen with that. It was, <laughs> yeah. That's how far stuck it was. Yeah. And it, the pain went away. Yeah. And so, uh, and we got him off the proton pump inhibitors and, and uh, were able to get things moving better and that's one of those simple fixes it's not always that but it's so nice those are my favorite though yeah my favorite it's instant yeah I know. and we see it more with kids yeah you can have the same thing with adults i had some a woman that i worked with in january that had that long-standing issues and it was just a physical thing and yeah. again it happens more in children mostly because children don't have the same other stressors or the length of time where they've had the stressors yes. to build up so the kids are a bit more resilient in that way and easier to, to turn around well plus their diaphragm is strong it's, remember the diaphragm is a muscle so as we age if you're not exercising mm-hmm. then that muscle gets a little flabby <laughs> also the uh one of my favorite nerves is the phrenic nerve um mostly because of how I, we were taught how to remember it. Yeah. C3, 4, 5 to keep the diaphragm alive. Mm-hmm. So anything like that, uh, <laughs> I like. <laughs> Never heard that. Never heard that? <laughs> not at the gym, they don't say that stuff. No. It's not like a hip-hop song or something. Near that no one's taking those lyrics. That's weird to me. That, that seems like it should be something. It hasn't made its way to TikTok yet. What? No, no TikTok? We should start it. Well, anything that causes cervical compression can affect the nerve that supports that muscle so we start to see a flabby diaphragm if you will for people who don't exercise who have heightened stress or cervical compression so uh, which makes then more prone for the stomach to get caught up on that diaphragm when you're not eating enough or you're overeating or just coughing or sneezing can do it yeah after people are sick we often have digestive issues because of that they're coughing so much that it sets up other other issues yeah yeah I think to wrap this up, it's obvious after talking that something as simple as stomach pain or bloating can have such a, one, 
such a number of different causes and such a wide range of different long-term outcomes. Yes. So it's not anything to be ignored. Some people, we talked about this when we talked about headaches, how people have their normal yep. headache that mm-hmm. isn't normal. Yep. It's the same thing with gut stuff. People say, oh, yeah, I just can kind of bloat it all the time. It's normal. Yeah, yeah it's not. No, common, not normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. So something that we try to tell our patients, you know, it's just because you've been dealing with it for this long, it doesn't mean that that has to be your your, your normal. That's right. We can, get, we can get away from that. Yeah, and it's linked to... Uh, a huge amount of other variables within the body. So yeah. fixing the gut is something I think we have to do almost with every protocol we do yeah. here. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Almost every. Yeah. And it's an ongoing process too, because you're not able to fully get away from every possible stressor. No. Right. So people learn as they go, what are the things that are going to continue to promote and set up their individual yes. stomach issues. Is it a food intolerance? Is it stress? Yes. Is it a nutrient imbalance or some some other thing? And ongoing maintenance, and sometimes it's easy, can be required for that very reason because we're never outside of any stressor. Yeah, and for those of you listening that uh, can't necessarily get to the clinic to get checked or anything, I'm just going to throw this out there. for If there's anything that comes to mind when I say, are you addicted to anything, you could not give it up, if you have an answer to that question, then that's what you need to avoid to see if your digestive system get better. <laughs> yeah, so it'll exactly. be coffee for some, alcohol for others, sugar for some, yeah. bread for some. Yeah, yeah. It'll be something like that. And if you if you just feel like you can't give it up, that's probably the problem. We should be able to go without anything other than oxygen. Yeah, I'm before, addicted to that. Yeah, yeah. addicted to oxygen. That's our only that's our only addiction we allow here. <laughs> <laughs> So try that. Um, it's usually the thing, and, and that'll save you a lot of time and money just to pull that out first and see how you feel. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. That was fun. Yes. Thank you for listening to the Synapse Nips podcast. If you like what you heard, subscribe to the podcast and share the podcast. To learn more, check out our website at www.officialsynapse.com. Until next time. This has been Synapse Snips Podcast. We'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only and should under no circumstances be considered medical advice or a substitute for medical care. Any information given in this podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease and is at the user's own risk. Please first consult a licensed healthcare professional.